We usually didn't publish a piece about violence without talking about ways to resist violence. The kinds of arguments that people were putting forward about how to resist sexual violence, that, that was mostly, I would say, implicated in conversations about criminalization. The majority of the people that wrote for Spread over the years understood violence, whether it was sexual or not, against sex workers to be tied up in working in an underground economy and in an economy that um, is criminal. And I think that it was impossible unless people were telling like a very specific personal story um, or if it was something more newsy like the Duke rape situation or whatever. It was difficult for people to talk about that issue without talking about the way that the criminal justice system was connected to it. It is the case that if you're operating in an underground system and you are criminalized, that you're just less safe in a million different ways. This is Spread Magazine editor Eliana Kaiser. Spread Magazine was an award-winning publication produced by and for sex workers from 2005 to 2011. In 2015, the Feminist Press published an anthology of some of its best material, In this week's episode, we'll hear more from Eliana, along with one of her fellow editors, Rachel Amy, as they discuss the history of the magazine, the evolving depiction of sex workers in mass media, and what the future may hold for the sex worker rights movement. I'm Rob Smith, and this is Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Stay tuned. Back in 2004, I co-founded Spread Magazine along with two other people. We were involved in the sex worker rights movement, and frustrated by the way that sex workers were portrayed in the mainstream media, always in kind of sensationalized stories, and very rarely were sex workers actually asked to speak about their own experiences. And the writing that was out there by sex workers was mostly kind of academic stuff, and we really wanted to create a space for sex workers to speak for themselves. We always had this really um, centered uh, belief that it wasn't about great writing. It was about, you know, valid, personal, unique, needed storytelling by people who don't get a chance to tell their stories. So not every piece of writing is necessarily the greatest piece of writing, but it's an important perspective. We wanted to create something that was kind of easy to pick up and readable and available to a wide audience, including sex workers. So that's why we chose the magazine format. With a magazine, a print magazine, you know, we imagined and we found out this really did happen that, you know, you could have someone bring it to their workplace, leave it in the locker room and someone else could pick it up. And so there was this way in which it became passed around and like part of a community. Um, And it was also something that we knew we could make sure that low income people who might be street involved would be able to get access to because we sent boxes of them to, uh, to outreach organizations. And so we knew that it was getting to people who may not have access to a computer. That's less of a problem these days. Most people do have some kind of access to the internet, but it wasn't true in 2004. When we came together to put the anthology together, there were definitely things we noticed about the magazine that we completely left out. As people in our 20s, none of us had kids, and we really did not include anything about sex work and parenting, which now seems like horrifying. We're both parents now, and I think like the idea that we put this magazine together and just didn't even think about having anything about parenting in there. I mean, like so many sex workers are parents. So there were obvious things like that that were left out. There was hardly any content in the magazine by trans sex workers, which was a big omission, which like we talked a little bit about, but 
when we came back to put the anthology together, we were like, what were we doing? Um, and then there's not enough content by people of color. We realized that that was going to be a problem with the book, but also something that, like, the magazine was what it was, and the, the book represents what the magazine was. We had to sort of go back and re-divide up everything that we'd ever done into sort of different categories. Um, and then figure out how to, you know, pick the best of or or the most representational. It took a long time and involved like a lot of big pieces of paper taped to walls and markers and different colors and arguments and take out. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, we, we did we did manage to um, to put together what we think is a pretty good representation of what the magazine was over the course of its life. I remember when we first started, I'd never heard the word sex worker just to pick like a really simple example used in the mainstream media. And now I think I hear it in almost all mainstream media. Um, certainly cable news uses the term sex worker regularly. Um, I watch enough cable news, unfortunately, that I've picked that up. And, you know, a lot, most of the major print dailies do as well. Sometimes they do it to almost a fault where it, you lose, you know, some kind of specificity of, you know, what are we really talking about here? And, and it's often used as a synonym for prostitute rather than the way that Spread Magazine used it, which was a much more inclusive umbrella term that captured a broader variety of people that do um, sex work. On dramatizations. Narratives are still very simplified and very cookie-cutter, and sometimes they're harmful and sometimes they're better. Um, sex workers are often used as metaphor in stories uh, to make a point about another character. You know, the emotional punch of the, the prostitute found dead or whatever. But I think that, you know, I mean, I myself am a lesbian, and so, like, I it's not a perfect analogy, but I think back to, you know, being a little girl and watching Ellen you know, come out for the first time and it was a little like cardboard, right? And it was a little silly, but um, it did matter, right? And I mean, these like kind of, they seem a little silly, little plastic cultural moments, like they do have an impact eventually. And you can kind of look back with hindsight and say, oh, it did matter that that little sitcom had that character on it who said those words, like it did, it did make a difference. And so as silly as some of these representations are and as non-complicated as they are and often as like whitewashed as they are and as heterosexual as they are, it insists as they are. Um, it's still, I think, important that they're happening. We use the term sex worker a lot at Spread um, as kind of an umbrella term um, for anyone who traded any kind of sexual service for money or goods or anything else. And since then, um, I think the, the sex worker movement in general has become more aware of the fact that a lot of people in the sex trade don't identify as sex workers, um, don't see what they do as a job. And so the term sex worker um, is used less these days within the sex worker movement itself. Um, people tend to say, like, people in the sex trades. Kind of as the mainstream media has started to use the term sex worker more, people in the 
movement itself are using it less. I don't think that it means that anyone's, you know, uncool or not hip or, you know, not keeping up if they're using the term sex worker. I think the term sex worker is still a very valuable term. I think it does a job, and that job is that it, it's very good at describing a group of people who do do labor and ident- self-identify as laborers. What it doesn't do a good job at is describing people who don't identify their work as labor. I don't want anyone to think it's a bad word. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. It's a lot better than many disparaging words that have been used in the past or words that come loaded with all kinds of baggage. It just may not describe everybody that you're talking about when you're talking about rights or policy work. Next, Eliana delves into the topics of today that would likely appear in the magazine where it's still up and running. I think that we would have been forced to address poor Melania Trump and the libel suit that she won. You know, anytime that people um, on the left, on the right, think calling someone a hooker is a club that you can pick up to beat a woman with, um, you know, that would have been something we would have had to have paid very close attention to. I think that the Women's March was very interesting in terms of the conversation that happened around sex work. There was a statement of unity principles that was put out that originally was very inclusive of sex work and then it was revised and then there was an outcry and then it was revised a third time back in a more inclusive direction. So it it ended in a good place, but it was a very weird, very harried process that it's really hard to tell what was going on behind the scenes there. But it created this interesting moment where all the people across the country who were interested in Women's March organizing were all talking about two things. They were talking about whether or not you could be inclusive of anti-choice so-called feminists, and whether you could be inclusive of anti-sex work so-called feminists in this women's march. All the different parts of um, the organizing movements out there are trying to figure out how they're part of the quote-unquote resistance, um, and we would have had to try to figure out our own place in that, and that would have been an interesting challenge. Um, because it's always been hard to do sex worker rights activism on the left because it's not, you know, it's it's always been um, a, a movement that has not felt welcome in most um, left-wing organizing and, li- and liberal organizing spaces for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I think that would have pushed those kinds of conflicts uh, higher in our thoughts. Um, I think I would have been way more concerned with the conflicts between feminism and the sex worker rights movement and the conflicts with the anti-capitalist left and the sex worker rights movement. Um, And I I don't know how we would have handled it, but I think that we would have had to have centered those kinds of conversations in the magazine because it would have become really relevant to the kinds of people that read Spread who are always more activist. Um, and figuring out how they fit in with the larger resistance movement when they're not always feeling welcome, I think would have become very important. And finally, Rachel and Eliana offer some advice on how allies can assist in the sex worker rights movement and circle back toward the issue of criminality. Listen to sex workers. Don't make assumptions. 
Don't ask a lot of annoying questions. <laughs> I think just like in any kind of situation where you're trying to be a good ally um, with with any marginalized community, you've got to remember that this is a diverse and broad group of people with a lot of different ideas and a lot of different experiences. And your one prostitute friend or your one stripper friend um, is not going to be able to, even if they think they can speak on behalf of the entire group of people, they really can't. And so um, it's important to, to listen to people, but to also be mindful of everyone who can't, who isn't represented in a room. I, I never, I never thought that it would be so quickly that I'd be willing to say this, but um, I think it might be time for people to start talking seriously about how to put the demand for um, legalization. Um, I mean, some people would say decriminalization, but let's not nitpick right now um, on the table as something that um, is a serious um, demand that um, the sex worker rights movement asks allied communities to center in their in their work um in a, in a sort of intersectional way i think that there's a lot of ways that um other people that are doing work around criminalization and work around anti-poverty and um, work around women's rights and trans rights could see that as an important piece of what they're doing if they could just cast their gaze over it and hold for a few seconds um so you know, it, it, it's sort of hard to see how quickly things move, but, um, you know, in the last um, however many years, you know, I, I do think that culture has moved forward fast enough that um, it might be possible to start having those kinds of conversations. And I wouldn't have thought that was possible back when we started the magazine at this point in time. That's it for this edition of Audio Interference. Our thanks to Eliana and Rachel, who have also provided a list of support organizations and political groups that advocate for sex workers. You can find that list in our show notes. I'm Rob Smith. Thanks for listening.